0: When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations but the thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed to the Lord and said and the Lord said to Samuel obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the 10th of your grain and and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city.
1: They have rejected me from being king over them. This is a text that catches us by surprise. Because Israel's request doesn't seem so bad at first glance. It seems like the natural response to everything that has come before because Israel needs a king. The whole book of the Judges, the book that comes right before this one, it proclaims on every page that need for a king. God has saved his people from slavery in Egypt, he has carried them through the wilderness, he has brought them into the land. But no sooner than the leaders of God's appointment, no sooner do those leaders die than Israel sinks into sin. And they spiral deeper and deeper into depravity with every passing generation and though God in mercy keeps raising up judges these men and women to save his people, it is clear from the very beginning of the book to the very end that they are not enough. And there is this one repeated refrain. They had no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel needs a king but not a king like all the others. They need the king described by Moses in Deuteronomy 17. A king after God's own heart. A king who will embody God's rule in the midst of his people. A king who will himself bow before the one who is the ultimate king, God himself. And so you would think coming to 1 Samuel 8 that this is the moment. Samuel the last and the greatest of the judges he's old his sons are corrupt that void of leadership is about to be felt acutely once again by God's people so you would think here's the moment here's the moment the king will be raised here's the moment that they should ask this question but when they come to Samuel he doesn't welcome it he doesn't affirm it instead it says in verse 6 that it displeased him. Literally in the Hebrew, the matter was evil to his eyes because it's not a request for the king they need. It's a rejection of the king that they already have. Listen to what they say. It's not a request for a king. It's a demand. Verse 5, now, not in your timing, now appoint for us a king. And not a king like Deuteronomy 17. Not a king after your heart. Appoint for us a king like the nations. And I want us to catch the full weight of what Israel is demanding here. Because Israel, they're not a people like everybody else, are they? They are God's treasured possession among all the nations. They are his chosen people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They are his beloved, his bride. And what Israel has just confessed in 1 Samuel 7, in the verses just before this, is that God, he has been faithful to them from the first day to the last. He has never let them down. He has never abandoned them. And though they have been faithless, he has been faithful and it's what makes what they say here so painful because knowing the faithfulness of this God knowing everything that he has done Israel comes to Samuel and they not only reject God as king they reject their place as his people and they say we would rather we would rather have a king like the nations and be a people like the nations than have a king like you. They're saying, we don't trust you. We don't trust you to provide what we think we need. We don't trust you to care for us. We don't trust you to satisfy us. We want a king who will fight, as they say in verse 18, our battles. A king who will fight for the things that we care about, not you. And we want him not in your timing, we want him in ours. Give us a king like the nations and give him now. And even when God warns them, in verses 10 to 18, of everything that this will mean, that this king will not set them free, but instead this king will enslave, that this king will not bring justice, but instead oppression. That this king, he will not save them as God has, and he will not save them as the judges have, but instead this king, he will be the reason they cry out. Hearing all of that, Israel stiffens their necks and hardens their hearts and it says still they refused to obey. And God looks at Samuel and He says, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And here's the tragedy. Here's why this is relevant not just to Israel back then but to you and I today. It's nothing new. Verse 8, he says, according to all the deeds that Israel have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods so also are they doing to you. God says it's the same story. I come to my people in kindness and in mercy and again and again and again they reject me. It's what Israel did in the Exodus when they complained that they were better off as slaves in Egypt than free under the care of God. It's what man did at the Tower of Babel when they built a tower to reach to the heavens to make a name for themselves. instead of obeying God's command to fill the earth and make a name for him. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they listened to the whisper of that serpent who told them that maybe God is withholding something from you and maybe you'd be better off if you were out from under his rule and instead you ruled yourselves. And it's the story that plays itself out in ways large and small in every single one of our hearts, in people who will assent to God's rule so long as he doesn't get in the way of the things that we truly love, who will follow him so long as he doesn't call us to let go of the things we think will truly give us life. A people who far too often say, not your will, but mine be done. Because just like Israel, we think we know better that there is someone or something who can provide for us what we need and it's not the true king. We think there's a better one and it's a story that reaches its bloody climax on a Friday morning 2,000 years ago because on that day the king that God had promised the king Israel needed the king that we need that king, he came the king who was after God's own heart the king who embodied God's rule in the midst of his people a king who everywhere he went spread mercy and kindness and love and justice that king showed up and what did we do? There's a reason, in every single one of the crucifixion narratives, the language of king permeates it. Pilate wants to know from Jesus, what kind of king are you? The soldiers, when they beat and mock Jesus, they mock him as a king. The sign affixed to his cross says, behold, the king of the Jews because it's the story of 1 Samuel 8 repeating itself and coming to its bloody climax in the blood of the Lamb. And nowhere do we see it more clearly than in John 19 when Pontius Pilate shoves Jesus the King Israel needed bruised and battered and bleeding with a crown of thorns on his head when Pilate had him shoved before his own people and said, behold your king. What did Israel do? They didn't say, put him on the throne, anoint his head, give him the robe. They said, crucify, crucify, crucified and when Pilate said are you sure they respond with something that should be chilling in its familiarity because it is a direct echo of 1st Samuel 8 they say we have no king but Caesar give us a king like the nations because we'd rather have a king like Caesar who will oppress us and enslave us and make us cry out, but who might give us what we think we want, what we think we need. We'd rather have him than you. And they took the true king. We took him. And they crucified him. And what is astonishing is that the king that we keep rejecting. He is the king in mercy who again and again and again bears the blow. In 1 Samuel 8, God gives his people exactly what they ask for. He gives them a king like the nations. And in John 19, Jesus gives the crowd what they're asking for. His body to be destroyed. A king rejected by the very people that he came to save.
0: He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Matthew 27. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Luke 23 reads, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching
2: rejected by the very ones he came to save but why you heard just a moment ago it was because they wanted a king like all the other nations and what that means most specifically is they wanted a king who would rescue them militarily and politically think about this Israel the Hebrews the Jews had not had their own land and their own government, their own kingdom for over 500 years. Imagine that. 500 years of being under the rule and the reign and the oppression of someone else. And so with that, they misinterpreted and misapplied a lot, if not all, of the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures. Twisting them and making them and and interpreting them to say what they wanted them to say, which was when the Messiah comes, when the King comes, the long-awaited Savior comes, He will rescue us, not from our sin, but from Rome. He'll rescue us and give us back the promised land that we once had under David and Solomon and the rain that was so good under them, and it'll be even better. And they misunderstood the nature of the scriptures to say first and foremost before the king comes in that way because he will come he will come triumphant but first he must come as a servant he must come not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many and this was prophesied 700 years before christ ever came it was prophesied clearly And what you heard read for you. In Isaiah chapter 53, uh, Isaiah was a prophet of God who heard from the Lord and spoke on behalf of the Lord to the people of God. And, And in the book of Isaiah, this is the most explicit language we get in all of Scripture of what is to happen to the Messiah, to the Christ. That He will come and that He will bear upon Him the iniquity of us all. That He will be crushed for our transgressions pierce for our iniquities, it even says in a verse that we didn 't read that that he will be marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of human likeness that he will physically upon himself take the full and total wrath of God that sin warrants he will shoulder the sin of the world upon himself, and if that weren 't gruesome enough, and if the crucifixion physically weren't just mind boggling the worst part was actually when the father turned his face away you have the son of God who's been in union in perfect union and community with the father from eternity past and for the only time in all of eternity eternity future he cries out Father, why hast thou forsaken me? But you know what's interesting? One of the verses that grabs me most in Isaiah 53 is verse 7. It says this again. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His mouth. This is exactly what happened with Jesus. If you fast forward 700 years, Jesus is here. He's he's lived the perfect life that we can't live. And yet, here he is on trial in front front of the Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate is questioning him, and, and it says, as you heard read, that he gave no answer. And Pilate says to him again, He says, Do you not hear all these accusations being made? Against you, And again it says, And he gave no answer to the extent that Pilate was in awe by Jesus' silence. Now put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew who has been influenced by wrong teaching of the Old Testament passages that you have been waiting for this Messiah to come who you think is going to walk into Jerusalem and set up his kingdom and drive out the Romans. And this is why the disciples were fighting amongst themselves. Who's going to be the greatest among us? Who's going to get to sit close to Jesus once he set up reign in Jerusalem? They think it's about to happen now. And you can imagine how confused they were when this king is on trial. And if you could be in the room with him as a bystander, if you're in the story, you've read through the stories of the gospel here in the 21st century, and you've been convinced Like those early disciples were convinced, this is the one, this is him, this is the one we've been waiting for. Then it's at this juncture that you find yourself in your humanness, in your reasoning to say, he can't die, you say, say something, Jesus. Defend yourself, say something. You're the one who just spoke a word and calmed the winds and the waves. You're the one who would just speak words or just lay hands and and the blind could see and the deaf could hear and the dead would rise to life. You're the one who cleansed the lepers, who walked on water. You're the one. You have the power. Just say it and it, it can all be over with. I can remember reading the crucifixion account to one of my daughters when she was younger. It was one of the many times that we read through it and she had was familiar with it enough to when i started reading the story she stopped she stopped me and she said daddy can we not read this part again and i said why and she said because it's the saddest part of the story where they killed jesus for no reason don't you know that's exactly how his disciples his early followers felt is that he's done nothing wrong even pilate himself comes out three different times to tell the jews I can find no fault in him. He's dying for no reason, but we have to remember that my daughter and those first century followers of Christ were only seeing through the eyes of logical human compassion that screams, this is is wrong and cruel to do this to Jesus. They were not yet, and my daughter was not yet seeing through the eyes of God's compassionate mercy which says it's right and it's good to do this for you. You see, this was the will and the purpose of God from the very beginning. In Isaiah 53, he says it as clear as day. He says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? Simply put, because it's only through the crushing of Jesus in our place that you and I are forgiven, that you and I are taken out under the reign and the tyranny of sin and placed under the reign and the rule of Jesus. Jesus was silent, but not entirely when he was on trial with Pilate, he he didn't say much because he didn't defend himself because he knew it had to happen. But when he was on the cross, he actually said some things that were absolutely stunning. Here's this king, this king of the Jews, bleeding to death on the cross, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities marred beyond human semblance and in the nature of the way that crucifixion Roman crucifixion happened was that he's suffocating as he bleeds to death because his own weight is caving in on his diaphragm and he can't catch a breath and and he catches enough of a breath as he pulls himself up to cry out and when he cries out he doesn't cry out for himself he says father father Forgive them for they know not what they do. So here's the spat upon king. The mocked king. The rejected king. And in the moment of greatest dire need. When he's shouldering the sin of you and me upon himself. He pulls himself up just enough to catch a breath. And cry out not for himself. But for you and me. The very ones who have put him there. This is our King?
3: May we make the following confession as you turn to the screen. With one voice, will you make the following confession with me? King Jesus, enthroned in might, robed in glory, brilliant in wisdom, infinite in majesty, eternal in power, endless in goodness, immeasurable in holiness, and perfect in providence. We confess this morning that you are the king, the king over creation, the king over the cosmos, the king over culture, even the king over kings. And yet, we also confess that we've tried your crown, wanting so much less than you to reign and to rule so much of ourselves, searching for lesser thrones amongst thistles rejecting the glorious gift of your ravishing reign. For these wrong wants and ragged works, O Father, please forgive us. And in your mighty rule, will you reign over our sins and rescue us from our sinfulness. Church, will you take a moment to just silently reflect in your hearts. Though I am far, far from good, The good news is that today is not just Friday, it's Good Friday. The day where we commemorate God's good work through His, indeed, good Son, who on that wretched cross did more than just pardon you partially, but He powerfully and permanently perfects you completely. So, as you receive now uh, the weight of our sinfulness, will you bring that before the cross in replacement for the weight of his perfect love. With one breath, we breathe out our confession, and with another, may we breathe in the assurance of his pardon, perfect and sweet and good, from Ephesians chapter two. Wherein the Apostle Paul proclaims, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is, by the grace, uh, it is by the grace of God you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, but it is the gift of God.
0: Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lemai Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split.